This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. Thank you for joining us for our Main Street via radio across North Dakota. And today we're going to start our show with Jack Russell Weinstein. He's the host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. And before each show, we typically debrief Jack about what he's going to be talking about, you know, explore the topic before the big show on Sunday. It's 5 Central on Sunday, and the topic was to be something that people will not hear, Jack. (laughs) Explain what they will hear instead. Well, unfortunately, our guest got sick, and she feels reasonably confident that it's not COVID, but she's got a fever, and she's not feeling great, and these things happen, and I think everyone listening understands now that being ill changes everything these days, and so we wish her well and are looking forward to recording uh, in the future a discussion about the brain in uh, philosophy and how the brain is used to answer the great philosophical questions. But instead, we're going to do a rerun, which is uh, what does science policy have to do with democracy? What's the role of science policy in democracy? Which, again, is tremendously relevant because one of the central questions we're asking now in our society is how do we use science to make political decisions? Should we use the data to help decide about things like masks and quarantines and whether to open schools and businesses, or do we take other interests into account like economics and and job needs and political pressures and things like that? So we're revisiting an old episode that is maybe even more relevant now than it was when we first broadcast it. I think it's super relevant now, and we decided we'd talk about something that's rather related to that because we're in the height of an extraordinary political season, one unlike any I've seen in my lifetime. It and, is something else, isn't it? It's yeah. just, it's it, it's overwhelming is to say the least. I think it might be taxing, fatiguing, exhausting, and we may all walk away with some PTSD. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about one of the elements of the political season, which is political debates. And uh, we're going to chat about you know, how a philosopher looks at a debate, and maybe in this particular case, a political debate. I can tell you, Jack, as a former speech student, uh, political debates are not debates to me. Uh, (laughs) There's something else entirely. But let's jump into it here. So philosophy actually was born in the debate world in two very different ways. First, in the classical Greek world, all politics was done via oratory. So, you know, they obviously didn't have newspapers and things like that, but also uh, someone like Pericles would get in front of the, 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 the populace and, or the Senate and make a speech. And then his opponent would make a speech and whoever won that speech, whoever was able to persuade people the most would win the day and, and the, the Senate would vote. When Plato first started writing philosophy, he wrote in dialogues, which were basically artistic renditions of an imaginary debate between Socrates and someone from their history, a cultural figure that they knew. And so they would have debates about what justice is, what beauty is, what truth is, what moderation is. And so philosophy itself, no matter what form you read, is a debate in disguise. And so this question of, of what a debate is, is very intimately felt by anyone who really wants to engage in philosophical thought. So philosophers are debating or having a dialogue to reveal the truth, at least a, a truth that uh, can be widely accepted. Political debates 
seem to be so far removed from that. Uh, they have time constraints, but evidence and ethics don't seem to be central to the discussions. Well, part of the issue is the question of the role of exactly what you're you're mentioning, which is truth, right? If you look at the political debates that we've seen on TV, there's a disconnect because what the audience wants is actually very different than what the candidates want. The audience want wants answers to their questions. They want some guidance and policy to clarify things that have happened in the news to sort of to get the the candidates to be more precise about something so that they can either confirm or or rethink their allegiances. But what the campaign wants is to enact an overall strategy, right? What the campaign wants is to say, look, we think this is the best way to win the election. And we're going to take a three-month, a six-month, a nine-month uh, approach to doing that. And the goal of the debate is to advance that strategy. So for the Democrats, the goal of the debate is to make the election a referendum on, on Trump and his policies. For the Republicans, the goal of the debate is to sort of obfuscate and move away from those policies and focus more on the personality and the ethos of of the Trump administration. And so while they're both about Trump, neither is particularly about answering questions or clarifying positions. Well, that seems to be an appeal to emotions or, you know, sort of your gut impulse as opposed to a thoughtful consideration of the idea presented. I think that's right to a, to a large extent, and I don't have any problem with the use of emotion in politics. Political emotions are really important in our deliberations. Empathy for people who are in pain, uh, fear of, of the unknown, all of these things are very, very human emotions in our part of the equation. But our gut instincts are really not the best guideline for whether those emotions are reasonable or not. Look, what we what we consider comforting is actually what's familiar right so the the slave holders in the in the 19th century in the united states they thought that slavery was normal and so if something came along to undermine slavery they wouldn't like it regardless of the moral position and so we have for example a debate right now about health care and our health care right now is largely paid by our employers and so someone comes along and says well look let's switch um our system to make it, the government pay for it or to have the government you know, manage these payments and people get really, really anxious before they even consider whether this is the right thing to do. It actually reminds me of when my wife and I got rid of our landlines, when we each got cell phones and we decided, well, we don't need our landlines. And for about two weeks, we were terrified. And then we realized that we didn't notice anymore. Change is scary. And the emotions will focus on the discomfort before they focus on the reasoning and the evidence and the logic itself. Well, let's just move away from the use of the term debate to talk about these political interactions that are occurring at uh, every level right now. I mean, they, they include name-calling now. They include outright falsehoods. Uh, is that any way to decide who should be leading us? I don't think so, <laughs> but of course, you know, I don't know that anyone's listening to me. Um, you know, there is a great logical fallacy called ad hominem, which is Latin for attacking the person, Yes, right? And so it is 
a great mistaken reasoning to say, you know, we're not going to listen to you because you're a jerk, or we're not going to listen to you because you're a child molester, or we're not going to listen to you because X, Y, and Z. That X, Y, and Z. That's that's not good reasoning. But words, you know, we do want our leaders to have courage. We do want our leaders to be innovative. We do want our leaders to be thoughtful. And so, if you say to someone, you know, our 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 candidate isn't very thoughtful or isn't very courageous, that does tell us something. So the the philosophical question is really which character traits inform us about whether or not this person will be a good representative which character traits reveal their political philosophies their political commitments um another example is we in this country are reasonably traditional and we think that uh, a marriage is a very very good thing but we are right now in the midst of a huge debate as to whether or not divorce and fidelity are indicative of a person's virtue. So there's this contradiction there, right? I mean, Donald Trump's been divorced several times and has been at least accused of, of tremendous infidelities. Barack Obama has been married once, has never been accused of infidelity at all. But many people see Donald Trump as more supportive of traditional marriage than Barack Obama. Why is that? That's the debate on the table. So we really are asking about character virtues and personality and, 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 and who a person is and trying to figure out what it tells us about their values, their beliefs, and how they're going to lead us. Well, it seems to say something about the values and beliefs of the people who would support that uh, candidate or vote you know, uh, for a red meat line of uh, attack. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and, and Aristotle, actually, 2,000 years ago, makes this point. He says that when you, when you choose leaders or, or value people based on honor, you're not actually telling anything about them. You're only telling things about yourself, right? If I am being honored by the North Dakotans, it tells me what the North Dakotans value, but it doesn't really tell me anything about myself because I could be deceiving them or I could have uh, done whatever I did by accident or things like that. So the kind of attack that people find believable tells us at least as much, if not infinitely more, about the people who believe the attack than the person who is being attacked because an attack is just an accusation it doesn't have to be true we need evidence we need argument we need time to really reflect to get some sort of handle on the truth well the debate that's often referred to in terms of kind of uh, this tradition of political debate in our country goes back uh, well over 150 years ago, to the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, before the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln, Republican versus Democrat Stephen Douglas. I, I just reminded myself, I googled that today, and I, I was reminded that these debates were three hours long, and there were eight of them. So people who attended these debates learned quite a bit about these candidates. So the Lincoln-Douglas debate is one of the all-time classic American debates. There's one point where they have a discussion about the role of logical syllogisms, of reasoning in political arguments. It's, it's sometimes cited in, in philosophy textbooks. But there are a couple things that are different. The first is 
our sense of time was very, very different. It took a lot longer to get from, you know, Grand Forks to Thompson or from Fargo to Moorhead than it does now. We didn't have a sense of precise time and we didn't have jobs that, that expected us to be, you know, there at 9 a.m. And, and at 5 p.m. People were more patient. Life was more patient. They weren't on television. Right. So they can meander and they could make mistakes and they could correct themselves. If most people who heard about the debates would hear about it from reporting or, or even read transcripts and they weren't experiencing it uh, directly the way that we all are now. And so uh, Lincoln and Douglas didn't have the same kind of immediate pressures and they could be more reflective and they were talking to an audience that was much more selective that tended to be much more educated than people are now who are turning it on for entertainment or for venom or there's nothing else on tv um very famously the first presidential debate that was televised was between kennedy and nixon and if you watch tv you thought kennedy won the debate and if you listened on the radio you thought nixon won the debate because kennedy wore makeup and nixon refused to wear makeup because he thought it was unmanly and so he looked pale and sickly and weak on screen and that affected people's um sense of who won and so the medium of how people experience the debate changes not just their sense overall, but how they interpret the words and who they believe and who they don't. Well, that just reminded me that that famous debate, which took place 60 years ago, uh, was those two candidates were in completely different places. Uh, they were not in the same room. And we've got a discussion coming up about what the next debate might be between the presidential candidates, uh, and perhaps it'll be a virtual debate where they would be in isolated places. And there's a big controversy about that because the audience uh, typically at debates is very important. The reaction is very important. I'm sure the candidates, you know, stack the audience. And the pandemic has made it harder to do that. The audiences have been much smaller and have been admonished, uh, probably because of their size, have largely followed that uh, to not overly react. But the candidates themselves during these debates, and I'm doing air quotes, often don't answer the questions. The question of the virtual debate, I think, reveals, at least in part, some of the things that I had said earlier, because one of the issues that, that is surely in the, the Trump campaign's mind is that if it's a virtual debate, they can turn off the microphone. And President Trump's style is a very aggressive style that, that interrupts his interlocutors and that challenges the question and challenges the moderator and President Trump, whether right or wrong, feels that he has to be in absolute control over the debate at the whole, at, at every moment. Uh, Vice President Pence followed that to a certain extent, um, but much less aggressively. And, and the racial politics and the gender politics were, were, were different um, with Kamala Harris. But if there's a virtual debate, the moderator can just turn him off and then no one could hear him and they can take the camera away from him and no one could see him and he loses power. And so the audience, I agree, is tremendously important and they feed energy from that. But these are uh, professional candidates. They're used to imagining the audience there, much the way that you and I are imagining an audience uh, in, in a radio station. We don't see people, we don't hear people. But the issue of power 
takes away or confirms the ability of the candidate to enact that campaign strategy. And so Joe Biden wants a virtual debate because it will help equalize the, the, the power and, and take away that aggressive element. And Donald Trump doesn't want a virtual debate because it will take away his assertiveness and his aggressiveness. And how you feel about the availability of the virtual debate is going to depend entirely on you how you feel about Donald Trump's debating style. Well, major political debates, presidential debates before the pandemic typically ended with a spin room, which was each side had their expert pundits out there to face other microphones and basically uh, do another debate <laughs> and say, this is what you actually heard, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of revisit issues that might have been problematic during the actual live event. And now we don't have that. We don't have a spin room, but we do have analysis that goes on and on and on after the debates. And you can pick the channel you want to watch. That's absolutely right. So, so the notion of spin that has become so, you know, normal to us and take it for granted for us bleeds into this notion of relative truth, right? Um, what's the difference between taking uh, an idea and sort of making it um, sound like it's for you and just lying? It's a fine line. So, let's say I um, I'm a, I'm I'm a car uh, car salesman in my first year of of selling cars, and I sell one car. Right. And that's terrible. But then the next year I sell two cars. I can go to my boss and I can say, hey, you know, I've doubled my sales. My sales have increased 200 percent. I'm still a terrible car salesman, but my sales have increased 200 percent. That's spin. <laughs> but how do you how easy is it to go from that spin, that polish, that whatever it is to manipulating the truth and manipulating the, the data and just saying falsehoods. And so now we have this idea where, you know, based on what television channel, based on what blog, based on what, what Twitter um, account you follow, you're going to get not just a different spin, but a completely different reality. And that leads to all sorts of questions about what it means to be an informed voter, whether it's possible to have a sense of what the truth is, um, whether or not anyone can be educated enough to sort through all of this, because it's now unclear what's reliable and what's not. I'll just give you one simple and I think uncontroversial example. All the studies have shown that Wikipedia, with its crowdsourcing and, and frequent changes, is at least as accurate as the bound Encyclopedia Britannica. We think of Encyclopedia Britannica with its with its leather covers and its fancy, you know, print and its expensive price um, as definitive and authoritative. And we think of the website as easily manipulated and unreliable. But the studies have shown that at least in that case, that's misleading. So who do you rely on for truth? And who can and, and who do you choose if one disagrees with the other? Well, this is another interesting wrinkle because during a general election, especially one like this one, everyday life includes talk about politics, but it doesn't generally include deep discussions with somebody who disagrees with you. We find people who agree with us and we, we spill our guts about politics. We talk about this and that. It seems that critical thinking is often undervalued in this process. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna sell college professors for a minute. <laughs> um, 
everyone thinks that college uh, makes students more um, radical. Uh, and, and lots of people think they make students more liberal. But actually, it turns out that the more exposure students have to their peers, the more radical they become one way or the other. But the more exposure that students have to their professors, actually, the more moderate they become. <laughs> and that college professors are, are largely moderating political forces on college students. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because critical thinking largely takes place or I should say good critical thinking, largely takes place in structured environments, environments where you can have sustained, reasoned, calm thought that's engaged with a community of people who are listening, reflecting, responding, and who have the permission to change their mind over time. The political discussions that we have on social networks, the political discussions we have with our friends are either you know, this phrase that people use now, an echo chamber, right, are either an echo chamber where people are just confirming and revving each other up on their own position, or they're heated, angry, hostile battles. And I understand why they can be angry, hostile battles, because some of the positions that people hold, I find are profoundly immoral, right? I mean, there, there, there's disagreements that I have with people that they're not things I can't get past, I can't say, oh, well, we have different political agreements. They're things that really poke at the, the core of what I think a human being is. But when I'm a college professor, when I'm in front of a classroom, when I'm talking to you, Doug, or when I'm on Y Radio, my job is to put all that aside and to construct a reasoned argument so that other people can explore safely. And what we need is more of that in our popular culture, more of that on our on our on the internet, more of that on television and on radio. NPR does it remarkably well, right? NPR does it better, you know, public radio, Prairie Public and others do it better than anyone else, in my humble opinion. Um, because there's a reasoned, structured, safe place to explore ideas and, if necessary, change your mind. And we don't do that in our living rooms, and we don't do that on Facebook, and we don't do that in bars, and we don't even do that with, you know, yard signs. And we're losing – I don't want to say we're losing that because it's unclear whether we ever had that, but the institutions that are designed to provide that – are themselves becoming ripped apart by the day's political battles. Well, you're a human, I'm a human. We all react to uh, stimulus, uh, whether we agree with it or virulently disagree with it. Uh, do you apply philosophical tests to candidates you're considering? <laughs> I apply philosophical tests to my dog. <laughs> you know, I, you know, this is my wife. Uh, this started actually on one of our early dates. She went to a department party with me and we did this thing and she looked at me and, and, and with a sigh and has for 20 now years done this exact same thing. She'll look at me, she'll sigh and she'll say, you are never not a philosopher. <laughs> and and all I can do is offer her my condolences and be grateful that she continues to be married to me. But yes, absolutely. I have moral commitments and I have ethical commitments that are that are that are very dear to me and I hold my candidates accountable to those. Although I also understand that there are places where I need to compromise because a, I live in a, a world with other people with different commitments, and B, sometimes you have to compromise certain things to win. Um, are there things that I'm unwilling to compromise about? Sure, there are. But also, 
I am going to trust a candidate who can articulate their position better with evidence. I am going to trust more a candidate who exhibits thoughtful, critical thinking. And I'll be honest, I'm also going to trust a candidate more who exhibits a strong sense of history, of knowledge of what has come before us. That's very, very important to me, to have a candidate who understands how we got where we, we are and why and can talk about the past and can compare the past so I can help negotiate the choices that I have to make about the choices that they have to make. It's really, really important to me that a candidate understands world history, national history, and local history. Because if they don't, I think they're trying to manipulate a community without the, the proper information. Jack Russell Weinstein is the host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. You can hear it this Sunday at 5 Central. Jack, always a pleasure. Thank you, Doug. Glad to be here, and thanks, everyone, for listening.